I don't know. It's just a, it's a slice of life podcast. So if you want to introduce yourself and tell the uh, the lovely listeners who you are. Cool. Uh, I am Dr. Jeff Howard. I teach game design at the Games Academy at Falmouth University. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer in game design. So uh, I'm into uh, games and the occult and heavy metal and, and all kinds of related topics. So uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, of course. Uh, that's uh, It's funny you say that because that's how I found out about you i saw your talk i think i watched i can't it must have been as a direct result of i'm not sure so right here's my wavy sentences um i think the first time i saw the make your game more metal talk i might have started it and then and then not got around to finishing it but then as soon as i doug said that you were coming he posted that talk up and i was like this is a man who i i think is a would be a good interesting guest to have on the podcast um and uh yeah so like is that is that the the most famous i'm uh, famous the most uh prestigious thing you've been asked to do is uh the gdc talk or is there like yeah i mean that's probably pretty close i mean so um you know i've written a couple books um so one of them is is called game magic a designer's guide to constructing magic systems uh, and the other is uh, quests, design theory and history, and games and narratives. So people who are interested in those two topics, um, or one of them, or some combination, um, you know, tend to read those books. And then uh, occasionally, you know, I'll get asked to be on a podcast, or you know. So um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've that was my second GDC talk, the metal one. The first one was at um, Austin GDC on uh, occult game design um which was kind of it was called an initiation into secrets and mysteries and it was kind of about easter eggs and different kinds of interesting secrets that we could have uh in games so you know probably the two gdc talks but also i guess the two books and um as a result of the books i sometimes talk about those things at um oh the east coast games conference is another place that i've spoken i've spoken at the Singapore MIT Gambit Game Lab uh, about magic systems. So, you know, um, I'm known among people who are interested in those topics. Maybe not, um, maybe not widely known otherwise, but uh, you know, that's kind of my area. You're the name in the field. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. It's it's quite an interesting topic because it's not something I'd put together until I watched the talk. You know, the uh, the the links and the and the metaphors that you can sort of draw that are in so prevalent in so many types of games you know like the occult and the macabre and all these things that are well-trodden paths especially for like older games i think you know there was a there was so much more theming going on when your pixels had to represent like a dragon or a or a like a castle or a princess like oh, i've got two pixels to paint this princess so i'm gonna have to do it with my words and my language and so there, i think there was a not a heavier emphasis but there was a a, a very uh, a pure adaptation i think it's maybe because of like sizes of teams back when games were like first being put together on like atari like cartridges and things and you have to think about bit rates and hardware right like i wonder um, yeah. so have you have you mostly like are there like major projects that you've worked on or is it is it like mostly like the analysis of games that like really interests you or like so um yeah so my kind of ongoing game project um is called arcana uh so like the like the major arcana of the tarot uh i guess in latin that just means secrets and um it is a ceremonial magic simulator 
Uh, it's a game in which you are uh, performing occult rituals in a magical theater uh, to unlock the mysteries of the multiverse. So it's a, a big and, and pretty complex game that I'm making with um, kind of a, a rotating cast of different people because it's an ongoing project. I, I like to think of it as being sort of on the Dwarf Fortress timeline yeah. of development. Um, so yeah, um, I, but I've got amazing people working on it. I've actually got this composer who's working really hard on music for it right now. And so his band uh, is called Piano Metal. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It is uh, heavy metal played on the piano. He is actually uh, the brand representative for Casio keyboards. And um, But what's so awesome about him, his name is Kyle Morrison. Mm -hmm. What's awesome about Kyle is that not only is he an incredibly talented musician, but um, he knows all these people in the metal scene. So, um, and I, I can't necessarily say names right now, but, but every so often he'll be like, yeah, so I played a show with this one Egyptian themed heavy metal band that I know you like a lot. And I just asked the bassist if he would play bassist on one of our, play bass on one of our tracks. And he was like, sure. So, or, or he'll be like, yeah, there's this, you know, one of the big four thrash bands and, um, their drummer, I just asked their drummer if he would play drums on one of the tracks for Arcana. And he said, yes. So, um, that is a, a, an interesting thing because the Arcana actually began, I started working on that a decade ago and, and, and kind of before I was thinking a lot about the metal aspect of, of game design. So it was mostly just a, a kind of a testing ground for the ideas about um, magic and magic systems that I was thinking about at the time. But it's interesting because that, that game, the, the Arcana game, uh, has now sort of converged with the heavy metal interest because I'm getting this really uh, cool heavy metal soundtrack that also has um, pretty famous heavy metal people playing on the tracks. So, that, so that's one big project that I'm working on. The other one is um, it's a game called Deadhouse Sonata, and Deadhouse Sonata is made by a company called Apocalypse Studios, and Apocalypse Studios is made up of um, well, the, the guy who runs it is is the former president of Silicon Knights that made, um, you know, Eternal Darkness Sanity's Requiem and Blood Omen Legacy of Cain, which are two of the absolute coolest gothic um, kind of horror games around. And so anyway, uh, Deadhouse Sonata is a free-to-play action RPG um, that is about the dead fighting the living. And it has one of the most kind of complicated, beautiful systems of classes where, where you know, eventually you're going to be able to play not just the, un, uh, the undead, but also the fae and demons and angels. And um, so, yeah, Arcana is kind of my own personal sort of indie project. And then uh, Deadhouse Sonata is... Um, Kind of a, uh, if not triple A, then definitely sort of double A, like like right at the sort of edges of um, experimental um, triple A horror game design. So anyway, that's those are kind of my two big game projects. Wow, those sound really cool, man. Those are like so. You've been, I'm imagining, you've been working on Arcana for a long time because it sounds. Yeah. Like, uh, do you know uh, John Butler? Actually, do not know John Butler. Oh, okay. Well, it's just it's sort of he's got this one song. It's called Ocean, 
Um, it's a masterpiece, but it's never finished. And I mean, like, I, I'm uh, sure you plan to finish Arcana, and I'm sure he plans to finish Ocean. But it's one of those that I, it, you can just feel how long that project has been with him, and like how it's it, it, every time he plays around in it, he finds something new. And I wonder because I feel like there's a lot of parallels between the way musicians work and the way game developers work. Maybe not um, in terms of like the literal act of making it or like the way it's organized necessarily but i think there's a lot of carryover i suppose between a lot of arts but musicians specifically like there's a you kind of have to leave musical projects for a bit and let them like gather their own momentum in your head while they're not focused on them and working on something else and then come back and it will feel fresh and new and you can then make make ground in it i don't know how like you clearly yeah. have a massive interest in, in music do you do you play music at all yeah, so, um, you know, currently, no. Um, when I was in grad school, I had a band that started as a rock band, and then it became um, a metal band later on. And um, I was a guitarist and a, a lead singer for that band, and then before that, um, I actually played violin uh, in, in an orchestra in, in high school and, and junior high. And um, so, yeah, those sort of two experiences, one with sort of classical music and one with uh, rock and, and metal, they've both shaped my creative life a lot. And, and I think you're really onto something, you know, when you're thinking about the parallels of music and game development, because the thing you said about needing to allow something to kind of creatively ferment or incubate and then kind of emerge when it needs to i think that that's actually that's like really insightful I, I sort of think that we can be disciplined in our creativity like it's really important to have a, a regular routine and all the kind of agile development stuff is really important but i also think that um we kind of have to to be disciplined and sort of waiting for ideas to fully mature uh and and kind of not forcing them so so yeah i think that there's some very interesting parallels in what you're saying mm. it's funny you say that because uh i have so much respect for anyone who's got the the tenacity to actually get competent on violin enough to play it anywhere because it's uh. murdering cats is the is the uh is the comparison for learning violin right like the first few sessions are just it's gonna scream at you a lot and it's gonna be painful <laughs> Yeah, it's it's such an interesting instrument, and it's been forever since I um, I picked up a violin. I, I actually, when I moved from the United States, because I, I just moved to the UK like three, three and a half months ago. Um, when I moved, I actually left my old violin as a gift with my um, with a colleague that I had worked closely, most closely with. But yeah, you're you're totally right. Um, when you first pick up a violin, it, it does sound very bad it's hard to make a noise at all at first because it just seems like the bow kind of, you know, slides over the, the strings. And, and then, you know, you kind of, you realize that you've got to make contact with the strings. Like, so you put pressure on it, but then the tendency I think is to put too much pressure on the bow and you get that, that bad, you know, cat, terrible caterwauling sound that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. But I, I, f I found that, that so much of the, the violin, um, involves kind of relaxing in, in just exactly the right way because you don't want to have too much pressure on the bow but you don't want to have too little pressure on the bow my uh, violin teacher my second violin teacher um used to always tell me to relax that was the, that was his, his biggest piece of advice when i was playing so yeah i think uh 
I guess maybe that's like a lot of kind of um, musical art forms or creative art forms that there is a degree of sort of relaxing and kind of going with the flow that is part of part of sounding good. Yeah, for sure. I think it's uh, it's that whole thing where you know you want to you want to keep a hold of the it's like holding like a bird right like or a small animal you're like you, you want to keep a hold of it so it's secure in your hand so it doesn't like you know fall out of your hands and hurt itself but at the same time you've got to you can't squeeze it too hard or it's not gonna be able to breathe and it's like there's that like delicate sweet spot and i think violin is like it sounds so good because that delicate sweet spot is so small and so and so precise and you can apply so much emotion to just a tiny little amount of movement um, yeah it's uh Hold on, I've just got a, a beat boop, so I'm just going to mute my um, do not disturb. There we go. Um, yeah, and uh, what was I going to say? Oh, is is what was the name of your uh, your your rock slash metal band, man? Uh, so we started uh under the moniker the Holy Fools, and then and then uh eventually we became um the Archons, um. A-R-C-H-O-N-S, named after the Gnostic, um, kind of the the cosmic, oppressive cosmic overlords of the Gnostic worldview, the Gnostic heresy. Um, so yeah, we, 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 most of the time that we were around, we were the Archons. That's cool. That's cool. Because I, uh, I had a band as well when I was, uh, I don't know how old you were when you had this, but you said you were uh, like college when it was like a metal band or... I grad school, so I would have been um, started that band at around 22 and played until about um, maybe 27 or so. Oh yeah, killer! So proper proper development cycle for a like if you're a musical group, you know, you go through that like awkward phase and then you find what you're looking for and then you, you practice that and then like sounds like to me that you had time to be like. Uh, we've we've explored that idea and i want to like try this new thing that we're all interested in um because yeah my band was uh we were a punk band which is the uh. funnest kind of band <laughs> to be in I think. <laughs> what was the name of your band uh, we were called the tourettes huh like tourette syndrome yeah yeah because uh you know uh. and our mom actually came up like my me and my brother were in the band and our mom came up with a really great way of being like well, it's like, it's called Tourette's because, you know, punk is all about trying to express oneself. And it's like, Tourette's is a very, like, e expressive and, like, it's quite, it's, you know, it's like, it's a, and also it has a, as a connotation of just, like, it, you're saying anything and it's, and it's, it's unfiltered. And it was, uh, yeah, it was just, yeah. it was just about, I don't know, it was more about getting on stage and having fun than it was about, like, ever trying to make any kind of money or, um, or any kind of success even like our moniker oh. our, our motto was like they're gonna hate us anyway so we might as well go up there and do whatever the hell we want and, yeah and ironically oh. people tend mm -hmm. to respond quite well to that like if you don't think care, so yeah just having fun for you then people can't help but like want to join in i think that's that's completely right i actually really like that name tourette's it, it almost suggests like kind of not being able to contain oneself like we, we sort of are compelled to say these things um uncontrollably and yeah no i think you're right i mean i think that um maybe that is why kind of bands in their early sort of messy phase um you know attract a sort of cult following and then uh it sort of seems like the hard part is not sort of starting a band and it's not even really um 
necessarily getting good as a band. I mean, sure, that takes a lot of practice and stuff. The hard part is kind of keeping a band together. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if that was your experience. It, it was kind of mine, though. You know, because it's sort of like once you are are past the initial sort of okay, we're just having fun, and then maybe you're in the next phase where it's like okay, we're kind of good, but then like where do you go from there? Because um, you know, then then there are sort of other pressures. There's the pressure of um, I mean, we were mostly sort of a garage band. We were mostly just you know playing on the weekends and stuff but when you do start getting that opportunity well okay maybe we might play out or maybe you know um maybe we might record something or, or those sorts of things then it's like um it either becomes more professional um or or it sort of falls apart it, at least that was my experience yeah for sure it's almost like that kind of uh it's like the sort of like in a way it's almost like a relationship because you've got that like you know honeymoon phase where everyone's just going like god we're just every day where we want to have a little jam and we're like i'm coming up with new riffs for it all the time and like oh this is a cool little vocal hook or this is like a concept that we could work around and then and then you sort of like you know everyone's that that initial momentum is like carried to a certain extent you know okay well i guess we should like play some shows and stuff or you know like say record some things and then like you sort of hit that point where it's like we've been doing this two years now. Are we actually going to like follow this through or are we just going to like let this fall by the wayside? And, uh, it's really funny you say that though. Cause, uh, the Tourette's were always about playing shows. Um, uh -huh. and we lost our drummer at like, so we were all like, like most of the band weren't even old enough to drink at the venues we were playing at when we uh -huh. started. Uh, they like most of the band was 17 and I was 18. And, uh, my brother's, was forming this band downstairs and they were like, oh, we need a bassist. And I was like, well, I've played guitar for a, like six years or something. I could learn bass. Um, oh. So I learned some bass and then the drummer left uh, like after like 16 months of like going to shows and like playing gigs and all these good things. And then um, after the drummer left, we couldn't find a drummer for like eight months. I don't know if it was your experience, but drummers are the hardest musicians to get and keep hold of. Yeah. Drummers, man. They're always late. <laughs> prove me wrong drummers yeah. prove me wrong that, it's a fascinating thing you mentioned there i mean and it, it's a it's a real paradox because the drummer at least in my experience is kind of the backbone of the band like it's if you soul. have a it re truly is the soul and, and if you have a good drummer there's a you know it's not a guarantee you'll have a good band but at least you've got a shot at it where whereas if you if you don't have a good drummer it's really hard um to you know so in my case actually our, our drummer was was very responsible and very um uh you know organized and, and all of those things but he was also pretty intense he was an intense guy yeah uh and that in and of itself can be an interesting dynamic to work with it it, it is a lot like um you you mentioned the the kind of relationship analogy and, and i think that's right because it's sort of like um once that initial honeymoon phase kind of wears off it's sort of like okay now how are we going to sort of continue with this in in like a professional organized way without kind of losing the spark that made it fun to begin with yeah exactly yeah and it's um so to like but what we did was um after losing our drummer was uh tried to find a drummer for like eight months wrote a bunch of songs without a drummer and then i was like oh we can't find a drummer we really want to play shows again I'll just give it a go. I'll see if I can mm. learn drums. And it's funny what you say about having a bad drummer, because the Tourette's for the first... Well, as soon as we figured out it would work, we did two practices, and we were like, 
we'll be able to get through a set like this. We booked a um, show. So I was playing drums for a month before I got on stage playing drums. And um, uh, we weren't good. <laughs> but everyone still had fun because it wasn't yeah. about being good. It was about getting on stage and just going nuts. So it, in hey. a way, it was like our ultimate defense was the fact that we were, we're punk, man. It's like, it's not supposed to be pretty. Yeah. Unfortunately, the no, rest that... of the musicians were, were much like very good at their instruments so could make up for the fact that we had a trash drummer yeah so so how did that how did that end up i mean did you did you enjoy playing the drums did you get better at them how did that go oh i loved it and i was um yeah i was just like well i suck at drums right now so i've got to practice so i just practiced really hard and uh we played a lot more like we were playing a show the whole point of the Tourette's was we would play like we were playing two shows three shows a week for like a couple years with like a mm -hmm. six, six to eight month hiatus in the middle where we didn't have a drummer and um it was it was so much fun man i played like over like over 25 shows all over london because our singer was really good at booking gigs he would cool. just send messages to venues everywhere and he'd just come back to us be like guys we've got a gig next thursday at like the underbelly in camden and we've got a gig here at the water rats in like hoxton and like it was just yeah it was just, we always had gigs going which was really really fun but um hey. yeah because i was going on stage all the time i had to get better at drums because i was i wasn't happy i sucked i was just like well we want to play shows so someone has to play drums hey that no that's that's fascinating huh yeah no that's that's it's an interesting thing um kind of the the broader parallels i guess between sort of uh, music making and game development because it's you know I've run into um, I guess a student or two in the in the GA I'm thinking specifically about uh, Jose oh, um, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah and, and Jose we'll talk about that too I mean uh, in fact I think in some ways he's at least sort of migrating in the direction of game audio if not you know in, in some ways maybe primarily audio but I think that that in his mind there are a lot of parallels between this sort of um, artistic experimentation and um, you know the the evocation of, of emotion, uh, the creation of an experience. It seems like maybe that's the thing that um, kind of game development and and music have in common or, or, or could have in common. They're they're both sort of direct pathways um, to a sort of visceral experience, maybe more so than uh, than, than other art forms yeah i think it's um it's it's something to do with engagement i think it's it's the way that these art forms engage people it's it's, it's like um i heard uh i don't know if you've heard of molly crabapple the artist uh the name sounds familiar but t tell me more yeah so she's um she's like an illustrator from new york and uh she's just very prolific she's She's been part of a bunch of protests. She went as an artist to sketch at Guantanamo Bay. Like, she's done some really amazing things in her time and written some really good books. I actually went to a talk of hers and got it signed, which was really cool. But um, she has this way of talking about visual art. And she's like, it cheats. It cheats. Like, if you've got a piece of artwork in front of you, it jumps into your eyeballs and requires no engagement from you to look at it. Like, all you have to do is be in front of it and you are engaged with it it's cheating whereas something like reading you have to make like 50 50 engagement with the the reader and the the content right you can't skim read a book and understand like you can like you can you can flick it and look over all the pages and not understand anything but you have to engage with it to like get something out of it which is why like 
narratives are so deep and so like stick with you so much but i think games and music and stuff you have to be there for it but it it's 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 not forced like do you know what i mean like playing a game if you've got good game literacy it doesn't feel like effort it's it's almost effortless even if it's like a really hard game like you're you're so engaged with it you're swept up in the emotional ride that the game is giving you whereas like music equally like you can turn off and not pay attention to the music but if you're engaging with it at all then it you don't have to do anything you just have to passively consume it right and so i think uh like jose's on something there where he's he's talked about the potential for emotional resonance and i think that's why you get things like you know your your more so stuff like pop right like cheesy pop is is very enjoyable like there's nothing better than singing out 80s bangers when you're like you know drunk in a pub at 3 a.m that's golden that that's a joyous experience but it's not gonna be the same as sitting down and listening to like opeth and like fully like engaging with it and like feeling all of the emotional turmoil that comes with like engaging with something that's been so crafted towards a specific feeling and like i think games in the same way like because they're such a young medium we don't haven't had the time yet to see how like your emotional journey could be affected and i think there's a few games that are like touch on it and that's why we hold them in such high esteem like you know spec ops the line or last of us or journey or absu or any of these emotional experiences that people have to sort of connect with and and, and recognize something in themselves more than something like i don't know like call of duty which is very fun and has its place right. but it's right. not it's not making you think or it's not making you question anything about reality it's just something to do yeah, I think that, that that that's true. And yeah, there's really interesting questions that you raised there because on the one hand, um, part of engagement seems to be the idea that we have to kind of actively um, engage with the work. We have to actively uh, interact with it, pay attention to it. But the other part of engagement that you mentioned is kind of the flow part of things. The idea that when we're in that flow channel, we kind of forget uh, lose track of time, lose track of sort of the everyday world. And um, it seems like, you know, you mentioned that kind of 50-50 split in association with sort of uh, the dynamic of reading a book and, and the sort of, um, you know, equal parts, the, the written word and the, the reader's mind. Um, I feel like maybe that is characteristic of a certain kind of flow, um, you know, because like music... You, you have to pay attention and certainly to play it and, and maybe even to um, to sort of appreciate it. But then at the same time, when you're in the zone with it, um, you're not aware that you are making the effort or it's a kind of effortless effort. Um, it feels like it, it you know, a, a well-played song, a well-played game, a well-designed game, a well-created song, like all those things have a certain zen-like quality to them a certain um i, I guess the the phrase i used a minute ago was effortless effort um mm -hmm. you're having to really pay attention and be very careful but because your attention you're paying attention you're being very careful um you kind of get in the zone with it and uh i don't know it's it's the flow channel i suppose it's like skiing right you can't be fighting the hill but at the same time if you don't if you don't engage and think you're gonna like crash into a into a tree right so it's is that right. you're not actually tr it doesn't you're not putting any effort in but you are exhausting yourself while doing it yeah no i think that's right um and that's such a paradox of the creative life um is that 
you know, we, we kind of have to have this certain discipline, right? We have to sort of show up at the GA every day at certain hours and, and practice what it is that we're working on, practice our craft. Um, but when we're really in the zone with it, we maybe sort of even, um, you know, lose track of time. We don't necessarily, it doesn't feel like sort of arduous grinding effort, even though just like you say with skiing, it, it is, it is exhausting. And it's so difficult to find that, um, to kind of get in the groove with that. You know, I, I think that, um, when they find the thing that they're really good at and they really want to be doing, um, a lot of the time that they engage with it is characterized by the sort of effortless effort. But when somebody maybe hasn't found that yet or they're just starting off, then it's really tough because a lot of what they're doing feels kind of grindy. And uh, it just it, it, it takes a while, I think, for people to get into the groove. Yeah, right, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's it's funny you say that because it, it just it makes me think of um, like uh, is it called ikigo or like the like the middle way in Buddhism like is is the idea that you're there's a there is a righteous path there is a perfect path but no one ever treads that perfectly you're sort of either too high and you're like working too hard and you're 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 like pushing yourself too hard and not having enough of a good time so then you sort of be like oh, I need to relax more and enjoy the like smell of the roses and 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 all of that but then you get almost too zen and it's like okay well i'm just i'm not what's the point of anything like what i'm now nihilistic due to the fact that i'm like it's it's smelling this flower is as important as as getting on with my life and it's like to an extent yes but to an extent no we all need to be able to support the people we love and like look after ourselves so like you know living off one grain of rice a day is not necessarily the way and that's what the like the teachings of buddhism teach right it's like the buddha went he did that really hardcore draconian style of of zen practicing and he was like that's not the way that's this this self-flagellation is not the correct way there is a there is a middle path and i think it's it's just overshooting it in either way consistently and trying to overshoot it less and less every time and that's all we can really do uh in terms of like sticking on our flow path right is because we all want it to be like a straight upward trajectory right there's never that it's it's peaks and troughs always yeah no, I think that's well said. I think it is. And uh, yeah, it's interesting that you mention um, the, the Buddhist middle way. I, I think that that's right. And I think that, uh, yeah, no, um, kind of the history of Buddhist thought is so interesting because I think when the Buddha is doing the, you know, severely ascetic practices that he's kind of, you know, living the life of a Hindu um you know, uh, Brahmin or a, a, a Hindu ascetic mystic. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, because, because, you know, I mean, he's, he's raised in India, he's Indian, he's, he's surrounded by Hinduism. Yeah. He hasn't invented Buddhism yet. And, mm -hmm. and then I guess he, he, and I guess before that maybe is when he's a prince and he's a, um, you know, pampered and living a life of pure hedonism. He's and a blind man, in, as it were. It's interesting that, that his middle way, you know, allows him, whether intentionally or not, to sort of found an entire religious tradition, to found the Buddhist tradition. But then that even starts fragmenting in different directions because the Zen stuff, you know, that's kind of its own thing. That's got its own lineage and it ends up in Japan, um, you know, by way of these Indian Hindu influences and then the um, 
you know the chinese buddhist confucian as well yeah yeah totally and then and then you end up with zen and, and it's its own strange beast um so um anti I want to say anti-intellectual exactly, but but Zen seems like it's so much concerned with that pure um, acting almost without thought, but but nevertheless not acting carelessly, yeah. uh, acting sort of mi mindfully, but not not uh, kind of trammeled by by over-intellectualizing things. It's, it's, it's so many strange. It's almost like there's a middle way within the middle way or something. Yeah. Um, it's. I mean, it yeah. always. It's. It's. It's funny. You, yeah, a middle way within the middle way, because that is an interesting dissection of of Zen in a way, is because it's. Although, sorry, I just wanted to go back because you talked about um like India and and I was just wondering with your interests, how much do you know about like the dark sadhus in India and stuff? Let's see. Um, I am very interested in. Um, the kind of left-hand path traditions and um those i guess are i mean they're tantric but but they're a variety of tantrism that comes out of sort of savite thinking which would be um the sort of shiva uh dedication to shiva who by the way i mean um shiva is probably my favorite hindu god if not my favorite god overall because he's people say he's the metal god he's he's because you know he he's the god who like um meditates on a on the top of a mountaintop with a cobra around his neck periodically having sex in the lotus position and then you know the gods will be like oh wow there's this terrible poison that's going to engulf everything and she will be like no problem and he just drinks it <laughs> and it turns his throat blue and then he's the he's the blue-throated god from there on out because he just drank the poison you know but yeah um so tell me about the dark sad sadhus because that sounds left-hand path related but i'm not sure i've heard that specific phrase um so it's um, i may not be correctly quoting what uh, that's probably not what they call themselves but they're essentially a group of um extremely um like uh dedicated i guess they must be hindu because they're like they're india they're in india and they 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 engage in intentional taboo like they intentionally seek out taboo and uh behave in that way to uh in a kind of diode like um what's the uh it's like what's diogenes's uh school of philosophy? the this the cynicism yeah it's, Cynic? it's almost i suppose it, it's not really cynicism but it's it's kind of that that thinking of like i'm just gonna do this really this thing to that to you looks insane and barbaric but to me is just like me proving that i'm alive and free and um and they they yeah they engage in like they like wash in the in the in the like filthiest parts of the river they like they, they like they know to like eat excrement and like do some really like yeah. dark hardcore like really weird things like there's some talk about like they like like take bodies out of the ganges and like do weird ceremonies and things like there's yeah. it's it's pretty like hectic but it's like i don't know it might be something that you would find interesting to research because they are oh, fully invested yeah. in like the black magic kind of uh it's like uh I don't know. It's almost like a sort of sorcery they 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 engage in there. Their, their yeah, rituals no. are odd. Yeah, <laughs> I... Odd to an outsider's perspective, at least. 
Sure. No, I'm actually quite into those guys. I just know them as the Agori. Uh, ah, the that's, yeah, that's their name, right? Like, I couldn't remember their... Yeah, no, no problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, and they probably go by, by multiple names. Yeah, no, totally. I'm very much into the Agori. Um, the Agori are classic left-hand path practitioners. Uh, and they... Yeah, they do all the things that you mentioned. Um, there's a famous image of one of the Agori... Um, like it, and he's he's smeared in um, uh, cre cremated ashes, and he's got a um, a skull that he's holding up in his hands because they they drink out of skulls, they um, use skulls as begging bowls. Um, my favorite thing that they do, because it kind of connects to my interest in necromancy, is they meditate in graveyards, um, yeah. with the idea being that. Um, when you meditate in a graveyard, you are sort of confronting uh, mortality in general, your own mortality. Um, and what I like about the Agori is that they are rooted in a particular, well, they come from the Saivite tradition. So, so the Agori actually are radical uh, worshippers of Shiva. Um, they come from the tradition of, of the Saivite tradition, which argues that Shiva, because he is a powerful um, all-encompassing God really does en encompass everything. So the Agori are characterized by a non-dualistic interpretation of Saivite thinking, which would argue that uh, all is one, all is Shiva, um, including the things that human beings have been taught to find repellent or disgusting or taboo. So that's why they would be eating excrement, or that's why they would be um, cannibalizing or smoking pot or, or just basically doing all the things that... Um, would be absolutely forbidden for a, a, a Brahmin. Um, there's a, a beautiful passage, it's actually my favorite passage from Hindu scripture. Um, I free, it's from one of the Puranas. I think it might be the Brahmanda Purana. Um, not sure which Purana, but, but anyway, it's, it's the, the other gods are talking to Shiva and, and they say, um, you know, um, teach us then um, the bathing uh, in ashes and the nakedness uh, the left-hand path that goes against the green. And um, I remember reading that, and there was a little footnote at the bottom that said, uh, may refer to certain um, obscure tantric practices. Like, the, the editor of that book was like, um, yeah, not really sure what's up with the left-hand path. But the, <laughs> um, the, the funny thing about the left-hand path, it, it, it's a strange paradox because... Um, I guess it was Madame Blavatsky who was the um, Russian mystic who kind of founded Theosophy, which is like a weird esoteric 19th century order. But she um, kind of popularized that term left-hand path, taking it from tantric thought, taking it from the, um, the, the Saivite tradition. And somehow it got equated in the Western mind with Satanism, I, I suppose because um, you know, the worship of the devil would be pretty close to the, the biggest taboo that you could do in a traditional um, Christian society. So um, I know a lot of left-hand path practitioners. There was actually a, um, so I have a, a, a talk. I haven't gotten to give it yet, but it's it's called the left-hand path of game design. And, mm. um, and so I, I submitted an abstract to the left-hand path consortium in Portland, Oregon, uh, unfortunately, I submitted it one year too early, <laughs> so um, so I think I have to wait like another nine months before I even know if we're even allowed to get on planes and travel places in nine months. Who's to say? But um, 
there, there actually was an international left-hand path consortium in England uh, like a month ago, and I wish I could remember where it was. I remember looking looking it up. I want to say it was in Dorset or something. I, I looked at the location. I was like, do I want to travel to that? It was right when it looked like the quarantine and the lockdown was going to happen, and uh, so I didn't do it. But I really do think that there's a kind of interesting um, – I would I would characterize it as like a contrarian approach to game design that involves deliberately um, pushing against existing conventions and subverting taboos both internal to game design and kind of um, cultural taboos and I very much think of that as a as a form of left hand uh, path practice not to mention that a lot of those games end up using left hand path imagery. Um, more, it tends to be more kind of Gnostic and Satanic and Luciferian than it is Hindu. But I actually think that's a shame because um, when we when we dig back into the origins of that term left-hand path, we do end up back in Savite tradition. So anyway, um, yeah, no, that's, I'm totally into those guys. I, I really do like, um, really do like the Agori quite a bit. Yeah, I thought you might know a little bit about those guys, which is why when I was like, dog status, and you're like, mm, don't know them, I'm like, Mm, that doesn't seem right. I'm sure Jeff knows something about these dudes because they are pretty, uh, pretty specific in their pursuit. You, you must know Diogenes as well. Like, one totally, of my, one of my favorite Greek philosophers. Just absolutely insane person. Didn't yeah. care about anything. The original man who had no fucks to give. Like, right. <laughs> he's pretty yeah. metal. He's pretty metal. Is and um, it's a shame that the word cynic has become associated with just maybe being kind of crabby and and um, sarcastic and skeptical, things like that. But I think, you know, you're right that that his attitude is much more no fucks left to give. It's much more, um, you know, um, get out of my shade, Alexander. I, I, I can't, which was it Alexander the Great that he told yeah. to get out of his shadow? He was blocking his <laughs> Yeah, the story the story goes Alexander the Great was invading uh all over the, the world basically and he made his way through a town that Diogenes was in. Uh oh. and he heard tale of this man, Diogenes, the crazy naked man who lives with dogs, um, who's apparently incredibly, incredibly quick and laconic in his phrase. Oh. And uh-huh. uh he was like, Oh, I would like to meet this man. So he goes out, finds him, and he says, Diogenes, I've heard pray that you're uh, you're an intelligent man. I'm I'm Alexander. I will give you anything you want. And he said, please stop blocking my son. Or like, stop <laughs> stop blocking my son. And he was like, hmm, uh-huh. if I, I, I like this Diogenes bloke. If, uh, if I were to be, if I was not Alexander, I would like to be Diogenes. And Diogenes uh-huh. responded, if I was not Diogenes, I would also like to be Diogenes. <laughs> oh that's great yeah I, I like the story of him um running through the square with a lantern because he's looking for an honest man <laughs> yeah uh, shining it in random strangers faces like where's the honest man where are you <laughs> right yeah that one's pretty good um or the one um where i guess it's plato who defines the uh he's trying to define a man and he says well a man is a featherless biped uh and uh and uh diogenes plucks a chicken and holds it up and says behold a man behold your uh, man yeah it's it's, it's, yeah. it's just perfect isn't it or like when they're discussing um because it was a, a big thought of discussion you know like holy uh divine action behind every action right and so there was a school of thought that was like well maybe motion isn't real 
And so they're discussing this in court, and Diogenes, naked as usual, stands up and leaves. And it, <laughs> it doesn't say a word, he just, he just proves to them, well, if motion isn't real, then how the fuck did I do this? Bye! Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't, it reminds me of, um, there was some debate between, I guess, idealists and realists, and, and I think it was maybe... Oh man, I'm gonna miss which which philosopher was the arch idealist. I want to say Locke, but Locke was an empiricist. Anyway, um, you know the 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 uh, idealist philosopher who's arguing that nothing is real, um, sort of says, uh, you know, how can you refute this? And and Bishop Barclay um, says, I refute it thus, and then he kicks a stone with his foot as hard as he can, you know, because uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Um, that is maybe connected to the idea of us as game developers and, and kind of game design practitioners. Um, some of the sort of underlying philosophical arguments surrounding game design um, spin off into such deep fundamental human concerns uh, that they're almost unanswerable. And, and you could sort of spend a lifetime trying to answer certain questions and maybe not have the answer. So like, I don't know, I was in a uh, GAM 140 class the other day doing a talk on um, kind of quality assurance and, and how do we evaluate design as good or bad. And, um, you know, it, it was turning into this interesting philosophical discussion. And, and the students, I think, very rightly were sort of, um, you know, raising interesting skeptical questions about can you ever say that, that one type of graphics is better than another type of graphics? Can you ever say in any objective way that, that this gameplay is better than that gameplay. And the thing I ended up kind of having to say to people is I was like, I'm really glad that you are able to think philosophically in these ways. On the other hand, when we're making a game sooner, I mean, we want it to be as high quality as possible and to do quality assurance at all, we're going to have to sort of agree on what the yardstick is for a given game. We're gonna to have to agree what type of player are we trying to reach what would be good in the eyes of this player and then we're going to have to test that so there's this interesting kind of um maybe that's the middle way of sort of a creative practitioner is that we sort of need to know enough conceptually theoretically to know what the questions are but we sort of cannot let the questions paralyze us we can't let them keep us from sort of producing the assets that we need to do writing the code that we need to do making the games that we need to make yeah yeah it's funny isn't it because it's it that that is the the debate of you know it's, it's quite a uh, common topic of conversation between me and my cohort because we're all in third year so we're all looking at the greater world and going oh no i've got to get paid for this shit um and so it's that dichotomy of like do I just start a project or do I learn more stuff so I can start that project better? And it's like, you kind of have to do both at the same time. Like you have to start the project and get on with something and have a deadline or otherwise you'll never finish it and it won't be a, a, a thing that shows your skill. But you're never going to be happy with that truly because you will all, if you're still working, you're still improving, you're always going to look back and see the flaws in it. So it's that, it's that, I don't know, it's almost uh uh what's the word i'm thinking of it's almost a naivety towards the the outcome that will be so much like you you you're, you almost have to be delusional to start the project but then rational about how you continue to evolve so that you're you're working on something that you could potentially have succeed 
but not so critical of it that you're squashing everything that could make it interesting. Yeah, no, I think that that's really good. I mean, maybe we're back to Zen again with the idea of beginner's mind. Mm. Uh, you know, starting a project as if is starting the project kind of with blue sky thinking and with um, without preconceptions and with the feeling that surely this time everything is going to go well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, we it, it is, as you say, almost a form of willful self-delusion because, of course, no project is going to meet our sort of ideal expectations and we're always going to be in the process of learning. And so, yeah, I think that's a good... Um, I think that's a good sort of um, middle way to hit because I, I do think it's possible to paralyze oneself in the same way that, that one can paralyze oneself by, by kind of knocking too hard up against some theoretical questions. I think it's also possible to paralyze oneself sort of practically by sort of saying, okay, well, I, I, I just need to acquire some more skills. I just need to, to do a few more tutorials in Unity and then I'll be ready or I need to, you know, I need to go off and do learn this about ZBrush or whatever it is. And, and while all of those skills are great to have, like um, by the time one acquired all the skills that one might want to have, uh, all the software will have changed and, and the working conditions will be different. So sooner or later, we sort of have to say, okay, well, I've got the skills I need for now. I'm going to jump in here. And in working on the project, sometimes that's how we gain the skills that we need to keep going with the project or do the do the next project it's an interesting paradox yeah and and like sometimes it's the the mere act of trying to do something that makes you realize why you need to learn something anyway and it's not until you have until the student is ready the master cannot teach them right because you're until you're ready to learn the lesson that lesson won't even appear to you and you could watch the same piece of tutorial content and if it's good you could go back to it multiple times and every single time you go back, you come back with an evolved paradigm, which means that when you come back to it, you can now unlock the greater levels of what the person was saying. First time, it might just be, I don't know, uh, you know, put stuff in a level. It reminds me of like the dartboard analogy of, uh, of trying to make projects and why it's so much harder to get started when you know something more. It's like the first dartboard you're throwing the board at is I want to make a game. And that's a big old dartboard. You can hit that pretty, pretty consistently. But then... You know, you, you make a couple games and you're like, nah, you know, I'd actually quite like to make a good game. And suddenly the dartboard's tiny in comparison and it's much harder to hit that good game. And then and then you're like, well, I want to make a great game. And that's an even smaller little bullseye in the middle of the dartboard. And so every time you throw the dart, you're changing your goalposts. And so it's you're never going to like be happy and just be stop or like you pray that you're never just happy and content and stop producing things because that's when you know you get a band that's on their seventh album and it, the first two were amazing and then now it's like well no one listens to their new stuff anymore like yeah i think that's well said yeah it, it definitely is and and yeah that's such a paradox um from the perspective of being a teacher i mean you know because um there are certain kinds of lessons especially the ones that are connected to design um that sort of, um, you know, it, it's, it's it's the case that that certain sorts of, of design questions maybe don't even seem like issues or problems. It's it's in, until a person has been sort of hard at work on a on, on a project. Like a you know um, a, a concrete example of it would be sort of the idea of agile development and the idea of sort of uh, scrums and 
uh, scrum boards and user stories and tasks and all that kind of stuff. And um, before a person has really worked on a large scale group project, those things just kind of seem like, like, wow, that would take a bunch of time. And what, what good is all that stuff? And why don't we just sit down and make stuff instead of putting a bunch of sticky notes up on a board? And, and what even is that for? And um, it's really hard to explain to somebody why that why that stuff is useful and important until they've kind of suffered through a project that had poor communication where nobody knew what they needed to be working on, nobody knew what the priorities were. And then you can say, okay, here's this thing called agile development, which is kind of meant to address all of those problems that you just experienced in your first project. And it's, it's a weird thing because you mentioned the idea of being a third year and kind of thinking about the, the concerns that a third year has. Um, it seems to me that um, first years, second years, and third years kind of go through this interesting um, process of transformation, what, whereby I think the first years are very sort of start off very kind of confident and um, they throw themselves into game projects um, that sometimes might be a bit overscoped or, you know, over ambitious and, and throw themselves into those projects, um, realize how hard it is to make games. Um, and then they get to be second years, and, and I think that they're listening a lot more to the lessons that they were taught as first years. So they're they're paying a lot more attention to kind of agile development principles and good teamwork principles. And a lot of what the second years make, uh, those games are very experimental, but they're pretty well scoped, you know. And and so then you know second year is going pretty well, and then here comes the third year, and during the third year people are kind of, they're really getting the hang of things. They're getting quite good at their specialisms. They're, they're good artists and good coders and good designers. But then the concern that they've got hanging over their head, almost like the sort of Damocles is, okay, I'm about to graduate. And, um, you know, what does the job market look like? And how can I ready my portfolio for that? At which point it seems to me, I don't know this for sure, but it seems to me that that a lot of the third year projects can be much more polished, but also much more conservative, simply because the people who are making them have immediate career concerns. I mean, they're seeing the job market and the interview process. And so, you know, maybe they're not as interested in making something strange or experimental because they, they need to make something that's kind of polished and, and will help them to get a job. So, so it's like, it's almost like, um, you know, the, the middle way idea um happens in the process of being a student like like a student sort of has to go to extremes um to find that individual path that they're going to walk and i think the scary thing about it is that the the learning process is actually lifelong mm -hmm. so whether whether a person decides to go and get a master's degree or or you know pursue for more formal schooling or not they're never going to stop learning and or, or 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 they shouldn't they can't and uh, they're always going to be trying to kind of tread that line that is somewhere between um, the experimental sort of artistic games, but also the the need to, um, to to have a job and get paid and all of those things. It's it's such a difficult set of dilemmas that a, a student is faced with. Yeah, and it's so funny as well, because I think that's a great point you raise in as much as if you're doing things right, you're a lifelong student. Like, don't it's it's one of the things that's i think clearest because i've gone from the real world back to school 
Um, and I, I endlessly piss off my cohort by calling it school. It's always school to me. It doesn't matter. I don't care. I don't care if you're at university. I don't care if you're doing a PhD. It's all school because it's all academia, and academia has a lot of similar flavors no matter what branch of it you look at. Um, and there's some upsides to academia, and there's some downsides to academia. And it's and uh, I think it's funny that you say that because I think it's so clear in people who haven't. Not always. There are some amazing exceptions to this rule, obviously. But so often it's the case that, you know, people come straight from school. They're like 19 years old. They've come straight from school and they treat it like school because it's to them. It's like, oh, the lecturer wants me to do this. And oh, I've got to get all this done. Whereas, like, you know, I look around at the people who have come back who are older and, you know, generally the older the people are that are returning, the, the more seriously they take it from day one because you have that reference experience of like, the real world doesn't care about your hopes or dreams. Like, no one out there, like, you know, your boss at, at McDonald's doesn't really give a flying fuck whether you achieve your aspirations or not. He just cares that you show up and you clean the grills when you're done. Like, and I think that's a paradigm that is very hard for someone who's only ever been through education where you're special. Everyone, you know, tries to bring out the best in you and you don't even appreciate it because you spend your whole life in it. And you're like, yeah, why do you care? And then you get out of the real one. It's like, they stop caring now. And then you, so you come back and that, I think that um, that point about being a lifelong student is really relevant because it's, you know, I'm looking at graduating and I've, I've dedicated myself to VFX now, but I only started this like, you know, seven months ago now. So I'm still, I'm under no delusions that right now my portfolio won't get me a job, but it was never about university for me was coming and having three years to practice art and learn what I enjoy and learn what I want to do. And yeah. To view it as anything else is to be potentially disappointed because, you know, I, I, I was under no delusions about the fact that the degree, especially for art, no one cares if you have a piece of paper or not. It's it's helpful for emigrating. It's it sort of demonstrates that you could do things. But if your portfolio doesn't show that you could do it, then no one no one cares. No one's going to be like, oh, he got a, he got first, though, with honors. It doesn't happen. Uh, right. So having th but that's what the university thing is for, right, is have a, a group of peers that are sharing in your struggle and have some mentors that you can learn lessons from when you need to. And, and, and having just three years to develop yourself and your person and what you want to say and what you want to do and test things like that's what university is to me, at least. And I think that's a, uh, I don't know, maybe that's just because I've come back to it at, at 25 and it's, it would be different if I came back at 30 or if I came back at 45, like, you know, no, I think you're on to several things there. Yeah. I think that, um, such a, difficult relationship between kind of what's inside of academia and what's outside of academia and uh i think maybe in game development it's such a like like that relationship and sometimes that conflict is accentuated because because we sort of have um both an an academic element to things and an industry element to things and um, they're both potentially related, but they can also be in conflict sometimes. And so, um, but yeah, I wish that the, I, what you're saying about the, the sort of the real world or the world outside of academia, I, I think is true. I, I do think that um, there's an awful lot of indifference and a lot of, a lot of people who kind of don't care about each other. Um, I wish it weren't true. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I wish that, um, we could promote somehow uh, a deeper sense of um, caring or, or investment in people as 
sort of individuals and I don't know how that happens though. Uh, it, it seems like it, it, it at a, at a well-functioning company, like a company that's, um, for, you know, in various sort of strokes of good luck and, and planning is, is doing well. Um, I think that, that, that those sorts of companies can pr promote that. I mean, so, um, you know, companies like Google or Valve, where if, uh, if an employee has finished their work, the kind of their role on a particular project, you know, Valve will kind of take its programmers and say, okay, you know, take, take the next two or three weeks just to work on a personal research project. Uh, and, and so uh, there was a wonderful GDC talk about a guy who, uh, at Valve, who kind of took the Left for Dead uh, conversation system and took it off in a bunch of different directions um, with kind of uh, natural language processing and, and uh, linguistic AI and all of these things. And he just did that because, you know, he was, he was on downtime at Valve. He'd finished the project that he was supposed to work on and they just gave him a research project of his own choosing. Google does that too. You know, Google actually does it regularly, I believe, where they'll, it's, it's like every Friday or every other Friday is sort of dedicated to the to individual employees personal research projects with the idea i think that um a lot of what could benefit the company in terms of innovation and thinking out, out of the box um kind of comes if people sort of feel free and supported to pursue their own sort of research so i wish that that was more um more possible at, at more sorts of companies but um i mean sometimes i think yeah, go ahead. I think that the you know it's funny that you say I don't know what changes that. I am under the perhaps not true assumption, but I have a really weird feeling about this whole Corona thing that it's I I have a horror I have I, I have a slight concern, slight joy. I really feel like it's going to adapt capitalism because it's it's not it's it, capitalism is such an old structure now and it's you know people look at it like they looked at the church like they looked at everything as if it's this rigid indomitable paradigm that's unchangeable and un you know you can't change that or ruin everything it's like but we were originally on a different structure it wasn't this so the fact that it wasn't this originally and it changed many times leading up to this it's ridiculous to think that this won't change the only thing that is for sure is that nothing is for sure right so it's like i think something like this is really tested and proved and I, this, there's a spirit of like, you know, wartime, people call it the spirit of the blitz here. Cause obviously England's very proud of how the English populace dealt with the uh, fact they were being bombed relentlessly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's, I think there's a, there's a sort of calling together of this, this coalition of, of, of compassion for everyone. You know, people aren't leaving their house, not because, there you know now there are government sanctions but you know originally it wasn't it was for nothing other than the government was like please don't leave your house people will die and people right. were compassionate enough to think well i don't want to be responsible for people dying and you know maybe if people became more aware of how serious it was they took it more and more seriously and now the whole world has been you know i heard a stat the other day that like a quarter of the world's population a third of the world's population is just indoors indefinitely and i don't think that we can look at this and not look at it post post-crisis and be like things were good there and i just worry that everyone just lets it go back to the status quo and i think like poland after the second world war we have to actually look at this and be unwilling to accept a return to status quo i think if we're if we if no one speaks up and no one voices a a uh 
an opinion that says, look, this was good. We did something good as a, as a race of creatures. We stood together against a common threat and it was beautiful. And I think if we just let everything fall back into the way that it was before, it will. It, like, you know, power structures reassert themselves as quickly as possible. But it, just like, you know, because I know, I'm sure you know about, like, Second World War happened, Poland got fucked over immediately. And then after the Second World War, they had to fight a second revolution once they got home to get their land back off of the, like, you know, the Russians and the post-Germany uh, coalition that, that formed. Like, it was a... They had to fight a second war. Like, as soon as they finished the Second World War, which they've been fighting in the whole time, they were then, like, forced to fight for their country's independence again. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating set of analogies there. And, and yeah, um, interesting to be um, viewing kind of the coronavirus stuff and the lockdown stuff from the eyes of a very recently emigrated American. Yeah, true. Uh, because I literally just got here, like, right before Christmas. I got here, actually, on uh, December 21st. So I kind of had, like, three months to adjust to living in a, in a country where everything was just different enough to be, to be, um, to be weird, you know, to, to require adaptation. And then all of a sudden, here comes lockdown, and, um, it, you know, you can, you can go for a walk once a day yeah. and maybe gro gro groceries once a week or something. But yeah, and it's been fascinating to see the kind of difference in response because, of course, I have lots of people back home in the States and, um, you know, there are certain states, um, you know, uh, Arkansas, where I'm from originally and South Dakota, where I was for the last decade, that still have not put lockdown in place. Mm. um because the it's it's interesting i mean there's there's so many different facets to the american consciousness and and part of it is capitalist greed um part of it is um a deep allegiance to strongly held individualism um both of those are there both of those get confused deliberately confused sometimes you know um and then here um you know, I don't know enough about the political structures to, um, to to say much other than that the the response when it came was central and and immediate. You know, I mean, it, it was it, it wasn't a question of which area or which region or which county is going to be under lockdown. It was everything is under lockdown. Here's how it's going to be. Um, and I I don't know. I. I, I feel some of the same things that you feel like like I, I feel that there is a possibility of positive adaptation um, that could come out of some of these things. I also worry though um, there's so much potential for a police state. I mean because like um, there's discussion in in the UK right now, I mean Boris Johnson's cabinet of one of the ways of getting back quote unquote to normal. Um, is to use apps that track um, disease vectors. So, you know, the notion that um, if somebody you knew or had contact with um, gets the virus, then the app would use your GPS uh, data to, to see who had had contact with that person and then would say, hey, you, you had contact with somebody who has the virus, so you should, quote unquote, voluntarily self-isolate for 14 days or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe it's that right before I came to the UK, I watched V for Vendetta. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I, I thought maybe it was like homework that I needed to do before I got here. Um, and and I, I I feel like that both things are here. Like there is the spirit of the blitz, and there is the pulling together, the the clapping for the NHS every 8 p.m. at, at you know on Thursdays. But then there's also that kind of um, you know potential for a surveillance state and and potential for using technologies to kind of track people. Well, if so, anyone's going to get know. a surveillance state, it's the UK man. Like we have more surveillance in terms of CCTV than any other country on the planet, and that like uh -huh. more so than like Japan and shit. Like it's insane. Maybe not more than Japan, but it's definitely the most in Europe. And uh, and it's 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 funny you say that because it must be very interesting. Like I'm I'm very interested to to like hear what you think like the main differences are but obviously this is such a crazy time that it's it's like it does the whole world is not not sure what the different like do you know what i mean it's like everyone's talking yeah. about how oh well, my plans are ruined but everyone's the whole world's plans are ruined like there's no <laughs> there's like there's always that solace and and like it's really funny because like you know i was bemoaning my oh my plans have gone to shit my mom's like the whole world's going to shit i'm like oh yeah yeah you are right it's, it's like no one's no one's like dealing with this like in a no one knows what's happening although i do I am very worried about America because it's, you know, all the things that about America. So, for example, like there's no national health care, like everything's insurance based, which is the worst thing to have during a public health crisis. And like, I don't know about you. I don't know what your opinions are of the president of America right now, but he's uh, he's not handling the fucking press situation very well, in my opinion. Oh, he's definitely not. And. Um, uh I'm glad that the NHS is here. That's for sure. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, it seems like Trump is kind of willing to sacrifice anything to, to maintaining the the most greedy, elitist form of capitalism that that can possibly exist. So, so kind of statements like, well, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna reopen everything by easter it'll be a glorious resurrection for the businesses of america and there's going to have to be some sacrifices in order to get the dow jones average back up and uh you know it it, it almost reminds me of like a human sacrifice or something like he's willing to sacrifice people to, to the profit. god of mammon for profit he totally is and so yeah so it, it's so strange. and you're all so yeah, armed over there like everyone like you've oh, all got God. these rules about like it's, it's i've got into debates before not debates but like when i was a younger man i'd get into comment debates in youtube and i remember someone saying these uh, are so where you can fight i was like you don't need ar-15s and the guy was like yeah but this is so we can fight a tyrannical government and i remember making the statement it's like what are you gonna do against the people who have all the tanks and drones but then <laughs> i realize now that it's like there's a lot more americans with guns than there are american soldiers with guns and you know the the numbers have always been a big advantage like look at russia they've never been invaded properly because they've just got numbers and it's hey. i don't know it's i think i i just i'm very worried about how america's going to handle this crisis because i mean you know no one is dealing with it great but somewhere it's it, never before have the perks of communism been so clear as in china where they were just like nope no one's leaving everyone stay there we're not letting this get out stop <laughs> And like, sure, they're probably lying about their statistics about how many people are like new cases, etc. Now, but yeah. it was uh, they they shut it down quicker than anyone else could because of their specific style of government. And it's you know it's very easy to look at democracy like oh this is the best form of government. It's like no, it's a form of government. Like it you know yeah. Churchill put it great. He was like it's the worst form of government apart from all those other governments that get tried from time to time. 
and uh, I think it's true. And I'm just like I'm just looking at somewhere like America, which is this they you know it's touted as this land of freedom, even though there's more imprisoned people than anywhere. No, that's side point, side point. But it's like you know it's this free nation where everyone's civil liberties and rights are protected so strongly. And I'm just I don't know. It's it's a uh, it's just a crazy time, man. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. Yeah. No, it truly is, and and there's so much potential for change, but so much potential, it's like a wildly swinging pendulum or something, because I, I could imagine, you know, I mean, so yeah, um, the Chinese response does seem to have been pretty centralized and swift. On the other hand, I mean, North Korea, uh, at least the rumor coming out of North Korea is that the way they're keeping their virus numbers low is that they're shooting um, anybody who who comes down with it yeah which of course is terrifying um you know and, and then yeah the, the the lawlessness verging on anarchy of america i mean um i'm not particularly worried about a police state in america no because i don't think that america is organized enough to have a police state <laughs> on, on the other hand um you know a kind of crass populist anarchy um i think is is very possible i had a uh, an ex-girlfriend who her dad um, owned a gun shop, ran a gun shop out of his, um, essentially out of his living room. And um, yeah, so I remember going back into his kind of gun room and he was like, um, and here are all my semi-automatic rifles that I sell people. And here, and he, and he was like, um, and by the way, automatic rifles are um, completely illegal but uh so don't look over in this corner <laughs> and and i didn't look over in that corner very closely but i think there might have been at least one fully automatic you know machine gun over yeah. there so like that's scary but then um you know i mean i think there's a reason that orwell you know set 1984 in in what used to be england and in his in his book and, and there's a reason that his vision of 1984 is stalinist i mean the, the the particular type of um oppressive regime at work there is a communist regime it's just a, a communist regime operating under the kind of dictatorial stalinist principles and any of those options as responses to the coronavirus are bad yeah <laughs> uh, they might they might be sort of equally bad you know like I, I i don't want a police state um you know i i would really prefer not to have the north korean dictatorial version of communism uh, i do not want uh an anarchist revolution um that is sponsored by drunk um hillbillies with guns yeah <laughs> um, not, not not interested in any of those things you know um and and I'm not sure where the middle way is. I mean, I'll take I'll take that. a slightly more eco-centric democracy. That's uh, that'd be ideal with some with some like you know anarcho-socialism thrown in on on top just occasionally, just for specific disputes about what people are allowed to do where, etc. If you're not hurting anyone, who's who's getting hurt? Like no one can like it's like the Spanish way of doing law, right? It's like if no one's complaining, then there's no laws being broken. That sounds pretty good to me, and and I do think that that was. Um... Not to get too political, but I do think that was Bernie Sanders' platform. I mean, when you say a, a more eco-friendly democracy, I mean, I think that's that's where he was going with kind of a uh, a gentle democratic socialism. It's where Orwell was going. I mean, that's that's Orwell's positive response. That's that's his option that that 
not to take people down the 1984 route. You yeah. Know? Have you read his book? Uh, so I haven't read it, but it's uh, an homage to Catalonia or to Catalan. Oh, I have not read that. Oh, it's about his time spent with the the anarchists in Catalonia during, like, I guess it must have been during the Second World War or pre Second World War. I don't know. He talks about how um, the anarchists took over and everyone was comrade and everyone was, you know, it was this this great sense of of freedom and liberation. And I mean, you know, the Spanish are notorious for their love of uh, donning black and being anarchistic. Um, and it's uh, yeah, and the, the, it's uh, it's all about the time that a group of people took over a, an entire region of spain and it was all taken over eventually they fought for it and it didn't it didn't win they they lost to i believe it was the franco regime but i'm not 100 percent certain on that my history mm-hmm. on that is not ideal but i mean there's, there's a few examples of weird different political paradigms i don't know if you've ever heard of christian or christiana in um oh. in denmark uh, literally in Copenhagen, or like d- completely parallel to Copenhagen, you walk across a bridge, and you're in Christiane, and it's a it's a socialist state. It's its own place. They have their own sovereignty, protected by the Danish government. You have to you like you can get residency there. They like it's weird. It's like there's like these Romany gypsies selling weed and like. There's just this like super artistic vibe and food's really cheap there, whereas it's like really expensive everywhere else. And like, yeah, it's got this whole like completely, it's almost like a, like a revolutionary vibe to it, but it's like, they've been established there for like decades now. It's fascinating. I had not heard of that. And, uh, it reminds me, I mean, I, I have immense sympathy with kind of heretical movements or movements that are kind of um, religious movements that are kind of labeled as heretical. And it, it, what you're saying kind of reminds me of, um, you know, Provence and the, the Provencal people. Um, and, and they're, I guess, they, I mean, so on the one hand, they had the troubadours, right? So they had the um, kind of uh, great romantic um, sort of French love poetry. Um, but w- within those songs were, were sort of encoded some ideas, um, you know, some highly dualistic, uh, potentially heretical uh, Christian ideas, one of which became the, the Cathar heresy that was suppressed by the, um, the Catholic Church and had kind of Gnostic elements to it. Um, I'm really interested in sort of that, that notion of um, kind of... Um, oh, sort of zones of temporary freedom or anarchism. Or I think there's, there was a um, philosopher by the name of Hakim Bey who talks about a, a Taz or a, a temporary autonomous zone um, as kind of one of those free-floating um, sort of uh, anarchistic areas. William S. Burroughs in like The Naked Lunch and some of his other stuff, he talks about the zone with a capital Z, or I think it's the interzone with a capital I, but kind of based on his experiences in Morocco, where he kind of, um, you know, uh, fled the United States to Morocco with the idea of um, being able to exist as a kind of anarchist heroine using gentleman who could kind of engage in whatever... Um, deviant practices that he wanted to and that kind of stuff but i i do feel like that that those temporary autonomous zones are temporary for a reason yeah that uh, it is really hard for any kind of anarchist movement to maintain cohesion almost by definition 
Yeah. Because um, what, what makes it great, which is that there's no central authority, is also what makes it hard to organize, which is that there's no central authority. Um, so I, I don't know. It, it would be an interesting thing to see how what it would take for a temporary autonomous zone to be not so temporary. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I always quote a podcaster I love by the name of Chris Bryan. He says, Burning Man is two weeks long because if it was three weeks long, everyone would kill each other. Um, and it's like the most amazing free love and like beautiful expression of human compassion. Like it's a whole gift economy. There's no money passing hands there. It's this beautiful, like, uh, expression of all the best things that humans can do creatively, etc., and stuff. But if it was on another week, there would be some murders happening. Yeah, no, beautifully said. And yeah, yeah. And that just raises some questions about, um, you know, what would it take to to have elements like that that could kind of live and and uh, and thrive for a, a longer period? I, I feel like it might be, again, back to our kind of middle way theme that has sort of run through through our conversation. Yeah, it, it may be it may be that I'm not sure. I mean, like, I haven't been to Burning Man. Uh, I guess I know people who have. Have you ever been to Burning Man? Oh, I wish one day one day I'll go. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I, I know people who've been there, and I've seen pictures, and I've heard stories, and, and it it seems to me that there's a lot of good things about Burning Man. I'm not sure that Burning Man is about the middle way. No. Uh, I, I think Burning Man might very much be an extreme uh, of, of kind of um, anarchism, and, and, and maybe indulgence is part of the problem. I, I, I do get the impression that, um, I mean, I, I'm certainly no advocate of... Uh, of repression of, of any kind. I mean, I, I'm kind of identify as, as sort of a libertarian, quasi-anarchist in, in my thinking. Um, but I do think that kind of unfettered indulgence, especially chemical indulgence, can kind of um, addle people's minds to the point that it's difficult to to sort of make good decisions, you know? Yeah. And, and it's not, it's not that... Um, yeah, so anyway, perhaps that's part of the problem with... Um, with Burning Man and, and maybe the problem with some anarchistic movements is that it's so easy to kind of get caught up in this sort of, um, you know, uh, violent sexual um, drug hedonistic hedonistic part of it and to lose whatever sacred um, kind of connotations that might have had, which is why I like the Agori so much. That's why mm -hmm. I'm interested in them as a movement because, um, I mean, the Aghori are Brahmins, right? So, so they are they are Hindu um, mystics, ascetics, and 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 when they would be doing something like, um, you know, smoking pot or or um, indulging and in meditating in graveyard or, or whatever, I mean, that would be done in the name of, of 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 Shiva. That that would be a form of yoga approached with sort of. Um, yogic devotion so so anyway if, if we could get more people doing stuff like that if we could get people who were sort of yeah if we could um, get more people eating shit and uh and skinning cats the world would be a better <laughs> place that's what i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh yeah maybe not that part but um the, the the part about um engaging in whatever they do um with a sense of of the sacred and, and with a sense of um kind of effortless efforts and flow yeah um then 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 the content of the act would be sort of less the issue it would be more the 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 way that the act is kind of engaged in 
Yeah, for sure. I think it's a uh, yeah, that's a that's a pretty beautiful thing to uh, to sort of come to a, a wee bit of a close on if you're if you're good because we've been going for over an hour and a uh, hour and twenty minutes. Yeah, no, I think that's a perfect that's a perfect uh, ending. And uh, so I want to thank you for having me on your podcast. It was a lot of fun talking with you. Oh, dude, it's been my absolute pleasure, and I would uh, I'd love to get you on as a as a guest again because I feel like we have so much more that we could talk about. Yeah, I'd love to love to talk again. That would be lots of fun. All right, wicked man. Thank you so much for doing this, and uh, you enjoy the rest of the day. If you're, I mean, you know, I'm in Cornwall as well. It's a beautiful day to go sit in the garden. So I hope you've got a garden. Yeah. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. So, so yeah, cool. Thanks for having me on, and and you have a an excellent day also. All right, peace, man.